And if you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 13 while we're waiting for the kids, you'll be ready for the first verse. How many of you have ever read Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea? There are some out there. Someone, I, I, I learned about what this book was about, about a man who went fishing. I don't really care about fishing. I have no interest in fishing. I know some of you do. didn't appeal to me at all. I learned what the setting was. Someone told me about it. I said, that doesn't sound good to me at all. But Ernest Hemingway is a great writer. And so I decided I would read it just because he's a great writer. And I loved it. This is a great book. I can't recommend all of Ernest Hemingway's books. Some of them are just not fit to read. But this one is excellent. And I learned about some about Hemingway's way of writing. Do you know that when he wrote a book, and he wrote lots of books, he would average two pages a day. That was it. Now, here's this great writer. Some would call him the greatest American writer. And he only could get two pages a day. You say, why? Was he lazy? No, no, he spent many, many hours writing. But he wanted to make sure it was exactly right. In fact, sometimes he said that he would spend hours on one sentence. And so you can picture Hemingway writing and... He's uh, taking months or even years to write a book, and he's rewriting, and he's ripping up pages and starting over and sweating over it and feeling writer's block and saying, i got to get out of here and go for a walk, and goes for a walk and comes back again and tries to write more. That's the process that Hemingway goes through. We usually say, well, Hemingway's a gifted writer. And he would say, you don't know how hard I work on those things. In fact, one of his books, Farewell to Arms, he rewrote the ending to that 17 times before he published it. Now, I don't mean the last paragraph. I mean the entire ending of the story. 17 times. You think he was tired? Do you think he was frustrated? Do you think he got discouraged? Yeah, he did. But he used... The process that God tells us to use to accomplish something. Now, Hemingway was not a Christian, but he used God's process. Let me give you another example. My favorite basketball player growing up was Pete Maravich. Who remembers Pistol Pete Maravich? You know, age comes out a little bit on some of that as to who knows who that is. He was a basketball player in the 60s and the 70s, and he ended up being an NBA All-Star and a Hall of Famer. He was known for his behind-the-back fancy passes and that. Just a basketball magician. Well, when he was a kid, he worked really hard at basketball. He would play for hours a day. At the YMCA, they would have to kick him out when it was closing time because he was still there. In fact, in high school and college, when practice was over and the rest of the team was gone, there was Pete still in the gym working on something working on passes, working on dribbling, working on his shot. He didn't go home when everybody else went home. He was very dedicated to what he did. 
In fact, he tells a story that he liked to go to the movies when he was a kid, and he would take his basketball with him, and he would get an end seat in the aisle where there was carpet so he could dribble his basketball quietly during the movie. Now, after a while, the usher got wise to this, and when Pete would come to the movies, he'd have to check his basketball with the usher, and then after the movie, he could pick it up again. But the guy brought his basketball everywhere. See, Pete Maravich, and at that time he was not a Christian, understood God's equation for accomplishing something, that it took a lot of work and a lot of dedication. Even these two people, non-Christians, though Pete Maravich became a Christian later in life, knew some things that we don't even know as Christians about God's equations. They knew that persistence and continuing to work is the way to get something done. And they knew that laziness or being a sluggard is the way to get nothing done. Nothing And so God commands us in Proverbs as to how we're to behave when we do a task. Now that task, it doesn't matter what that task is. It could be work or kids. It could be school. It could be a current ministry that you're doing. Or it could be a ministry that you want to start. It could be trying to develop some kind of skill, a sport that you're working on, a craft that you're doing, learning how to write, learning how to draw, woodworking, playing chess, all of those things, it applies to whatever we do in life. Now, lest you miss the spiritual quality of what's in Proverbs, I want to warn you, this is not like a lesson from Aesop's Fable, where they tell you a little story and then we learn a lesson from it. And it's not a lesson on how you can be successful in life. It's not what this is about. This is about being diligent in all that we do and not being lazy in all that we do. And Proverbs addresses this. The great thing about Proverbs, it's very earthy, isn't it? It's very earthy. It's just everything that we do. It tells you how to raise your kids. tells you how to use money. tells you how to choose friends. Just things that happen in everyday life. And those are God's equations and God's commands for doing those things. So this morning, we are going to talk about laziness and diligence. Proverbs was written very at the very beginning. It says, I've written these things so that you can receive instruction in wise behavior. And so that's my goal this morning. How are we going to receive, we're going to receive instruction in wise behavior as to whether we're being a sluggard or whether we're being diligent? Proverbs 13.4 is going to define the sluggard and the diligent for us. And we'll start with that, a definition. Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Now, there's a very simple, earthy equation from God. If you want something, if you really crave it, and you're not willing to work for it, You get nothing. That's how it works. It works that way for everybody. When I was teaching in high school, I used to hear the kids say, the students say a lot, oh man, I wish I could play the guitar and be in a rock band. I wish I was famous like that. I wish I could play the drums like so and so. And so I'd say, 
Are you taking guitar lessons? No. Have you taught yourself how to play the drums? No. Are you going to take lessons? No. Well, how do you expect to get to that point then? I don't know. I just wish I could do it. So you don't want to pay the price to get there. You crave, like the sluggard, you crave for this. You want it, but you're not willing to do anything to get there, basically. Compare that to maybe the greatest violinist of all time, Yasha Heifetz. Yasha Heifetz started practicing the violin when he was three years old. And he practiced four hours a day until he was 75 years old. Four hours a day. So what happens when Yasha Heifetz practices four hours a day? He becomes good. He becomes great. He becomes the greatest because he uses God's equation. He could say, well, I wish I could play the violin. But that means nothing until he actually practices, practices, practices every single day for those hours. Now, what's the difference between Yasha Heifetz and my students? Well, my students wasted time. Yasha Heifetz invested time. My students did whatever they want. Yasha Heifetz said, no, these four hours are for playing the violin. My students were lazy. Yasha Heifetz was diligent. And therein lies the difference as who can actually accomplish something in life. Desiring gets you nowhere. You can walk through the classrooms here. I've had the posters in my classrooms when I was a teacher. I see them everywhere. And there are all these posters about dream big dreams and shoot for the stars and all these kinds of things. Get you nowhere. It's the work that gets you there. It's putting in the time and the practice that gets you. It's the labor. It's the sweat. It's not the dreaming. Dreaming doesn't help. So I want to talk about three characteristics of the sluggard today. And I want us to ask, Am I thinking like the sluggard? Am I acting like the sluggard? And how can I change? First characteristic of the sluggard you'll find in Proverbs 14. Just turn one chapter over, verse 23. Because the sluggard is a talker. A lot of talk and little action. Proverbs 14:23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. See the opposition? There's labor and there's just talking about it. If I took a poll anywhere in the United States and I asked one question to the people, do you think we should help the homeless? What percentage would say yes? Probably 100%. I mean, who would say no to that question? Do you think we should help the homeless? Yes. But what if I changed the question? And I said, have you ever helped the homeless? Percentage goes way down, doesn't it? Because there's talk. Yeah, I think we should help them. And there's actually doing and giving them something and helping them and being merciful to them. There's a big difference. Many of you know John Piper, the preacher up in uh, Minneapolis. He did something that exemplifies this really great He preaches a lot and has had conferences on racial equality and breaking down the barriers 
between the whites and the blacks and whites and other other races. And so he talks about those things, embracing the black community more. And so what did they do? They went and adopted a little black girl named Talitha. He put his words into action. And he, he was probably late 40s, close to 50 when he did this. So it's not your normal adoption. And he took inner city kid, black girl who was up for adoption, and they adopted her. That's his daughter now. So he can say, yes, yes, we ought to bring in the races. We ought to break down those barriers. And he's actually doing something about it. He's not mere talk. They went and adopted him. That's a man who puts feet to his beliefs. There's a scriptural example I want you to turn to in James chapter 1 that talks about the talker and the doer. In James chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his own tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Let's stop right there. That first phrase, if anyone thinks they're religious. Now, when a person thinks they're religious, they will also talk about religion, right? You know, I go to church here, and we do these kind of things. And they can even talk about their idea of God. People who think they're religious can talk about religion. In fact, I was up at uh, some General Mills meetings, and as we were eating dinner with the other sales reps in the region... One guy started talking about his church in Milwaukee. I thought, here's a good opportunity. You don't get much religious talk up there. And so he starts talking about the Easter message and how long the pastor went on preaching. And I said to him, I said, well, Paul, how long did he preach? He said, 15 minutes. I said, have I got a pastor for you? (laughs) I said, our pastor preaches 45 minutes to an hour. And he jaw dropped. It's like, how can you stand to listen to that for 45 minutes to an hour? If you have anything that's worth saying, you can say it in 15 minutes. <laughs> Does that mean for this sermon? Okay. But it was amazing that Paul, who is not a Christian, and it was very evident to me as I've, as I've known him over the years, he is not a Christian. He was willing to talk about religion in front of everybody. He felt very comfortable with that. But if I would have asked him, well, Paul, it says here, if you think yourself to be religious, do you hold your tongue and not say profane things? Are you careful about how you speak? He would say, no, because it's evident that he doesn't. Well, Paul, your religion is worthless. You're a talker. Sluggards talk. Diligent do. In fact, further, if you go on in that verse, they talk about more things. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. So I might ask Paul, Paul, do you help the the oppressed people, maybe even in the Milwaukee area? No. 
do you not conform to this world? Are you different than the way this world does things? Are you unstained by the world? Obviously not. But your religion's worthless. You're a talker. The sluggard has mere talk. The diligent do. One chapter over. James talks about this in chapter 2 also. In verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What's he saying? The sluggard says, Yeah, yeah, I hope things go well for you. Hope things get better. You know why? Because it's easy, isn't it? That's easy. Well, good luck. It's easy to say good luck. A lot harder to actually labor and give them something. Talk never changes things. Effort changes things. So God's law, first of all, for the sluggard, is that effort gets something done and talking about it is useless. We could all make a list of our talk. I can give you a list as long as any list that you can make. This is what I want to do. Or I plan to do this. I even write it on paper. I even start the project. And I have a long list of unfinished projects and desires. Why? Because I'm a sluggard sometimes. I'm not diligent. I bite off more than I can chew, and I just talk about it. second characteristic of the sluggard, not only is he a mere talker, but Proverbs also tells us that he exaggerates his fears. Look at Proverbs 26, 13. One of the more curious verses in the scripture, because it just stands alone and you scratch your head and you go, what does that mean? Proverbs 26, 13. The sluggard says... There's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. That's it. That's the end of that verse. Well, what is the sluggard doing crying about a lion? In fact, uh, there's another verse in uh, 22, chapter 22. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be slain in the streets. Now, I'll grant you, if there's really a lion out there, I think you should stay inside. That's a good idea. We saw that at the orphanage. We said, why is the wall this high? Because there are tigers and there are rhinoceroses in the area. So we don't let the kids go outside the walls at night. That makes sense to me. So why is the sluggard crying this? Look out for the lions. I think there's a lion out there. I'm staying inside. How often do you really think there's a lion in the streets? in the city, even in Israel. Not very often. But the sluggard sees that a lot, doesn't he? Well, there was a lion here once, and I'm not going out again. In fact, I think I'll just stay home. It's real convenient. In fact, maybe I'll take a nap and uh, not not go about my duties because who really wants to be torn up by a lion? And so he has excuses. He has excuses of what if. What if there's a lion out there? If I get out there, things may go wrong. I might hear a roar. Well, yes, that's true. You might. But I bet you 99 times out of 100, there's not a lion in the street. Does that sound like us? I can always think of an excuse. 
and I can exaggerate the conditions. And if I exaggerate the conditions, I have reasons not to do something. What happened when the spies, the 12 spies went and spied out the promised land? Joshua and Caleb said, all right, let's go. Yeah, we saw them. God says, that's our land. God promised we could conquer them. Let's go. And 10 of them are going, did you see the size of those guys? No, 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 no. I don't think we ought to do that. They're giants. We're grasshoppers in their sight. We shouldn't do this. All of a sudden, they're exaggerating the condition. They're crying, lions in the street. God already told them, that's your land. Go take it. Now, the spies, the ten spies, and the rest of the people, you know, they convince them, no, we shouldn't do it. They're, they're giants. They're probably sitting around afterwards going, well, that saves us from a battle, doesn't it? I'm glad we don't have to go to battle. In fact, I'm glad we don't have to fight those big guys. Let's just relax. Let's have a more peaceful, peaceful time. War? I'm tired of war. Let's just stay home. And so they did the lion in the street, exaggerated their fears, and they got nothing. In fact, they waited a long time to inherit that promised land. And they wandered. And they strayed. See, fears and obstacles, we all create them, make it easier on us, don't they? If I can list my obstacles, I can have reasons not to do something. And that's what the sluggard does. Think of all the bad things that can happen in a day. You could have an accident. You could fall and break a bone. Someone could insult you. You could lose something. You could stub your toe. You could make a goof at school. You could make a big mistake at work. I can go on and on and on with all the things that could go wrong. And the sluggard reasons like that. We can do that with Christian ministries. Anytime we start a ministry, does it go smoothly? Never. There's always ups and downs. There's always lions in there that could mess up the plan. And so we have to fight against that. We have to not create lions. And on top of that, there are a bunch of people who will create lions for you. There's someone in your life, maybe several people in your life, might be a family member, could be a friend, could be a co-worker, who will create lions for you and give you all the reasons as to why you shouldn't do something. You give them an idea, you state an intention that they have, and they'll give you an example of how others have failed doing the same thing. Or they'll list their obstacles. Or they'll say, well, it didn't work for me when I tried that. Are we surprised that there's going to be obstacles when we want to do something? Of course not. There's always problems. There's always obstacles. And if somebody throws obstacles at you when you give your intentions, you should say, yep, there's going to be problems. You're right. But that doesn't deter us. That doesn't make us quit. You can cry lions, but I'm not going to listen to you. Now, sometimes even people have good intentions when they create lions for you. While I was up at General Mills meetings this last week, I was telling people about our trip to Nepal. And they were very interested. And so over dinner we were talking. One guy says, and you can fill in this blank, 
One guy says, you know, Steve, I think that's great that you went to Nepal and that you help poor people and your church is going to help poor people. But wouldn't it be a lot easier if you just stayed in Rockford, America? Yeah. I said, well, of course it would be easier. You don't have to fly halfway around the world. You don't have to have jet lag. You don't have to eat strange foods in another culture. You don't have to have the language barriers. Of course it would be easier. But what does that have to do with anything? There's a lion in the street, a lion in the street. I don't care. God told us we're going there, and that's where we're going. If I want easy, we'll all stay home. We won't do anything. That's why I think God had to constantly repeat to Joshua. When you read the book of Joshua, what encouragement does God keep giving Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Constantly repeats that to him. Why does Joshua need that? Because there's a whole bunch of people who are trying to sidetrack him and cry about lions in the street. And so Joshua needed to know that I've got to be strong and I've got to be courageous. Same thing happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They had all broken down. And so he got permission to rebuild them. And so he gathered the people together, said, okay, we're going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and we've got to get these walls in shape here. And there are people out there who are threatening him, Samballot and Tobias and some others saying, don't rebuild those walls. What are you trying to do, overthrow the king? You'll ne- it'll never work. And they were constantly insulting them and threatening them. And so when these guys are working, and I don't know how they do this, but they're building these walls with a trowel and putting all the materials together. In one hand, they got their trowel, their building tool. And in the other hand, they have a sword ready for the attack. The sword and the trowel. And so they're working, but they're ready to fight. Now, that's not an easy way to build a wall. It'd be much easier to say, well, why don't we just go to war? Or why don't we quit this? We're under threat all the time. Or there's lions in the street. Things might go wrong. Yes, things might go wrong. But they kept building. And in fact, at one time, they sent letters to Nehemiah and they sent spies in. And these letters kept saying, you know, you need to stop building the wall because some people are coming to kill you. And Nehemiah took those letters and he took that threat when they came and they said, Nehemiah, run into the temple, run into the temple, hide. He said, what kind of man am I that I should run? I will not. See, the sluggard says, oh, there's an excuse. Yeah, there's a lion in the street. Maybe we should stop. This is getting really hard. This is a real hassle. These people are making this hard for me. Or there's the diligent who says, I'm going to keep building this wall anyway. And what happened? The wall got built. And Jerusalem was restored because Nehemiah was diligent. He chooses not to believe other people crying lions in the street either. So you have control over your own tendency to create lions and you have control to turn off the people who are crying lions in the street in your ear to get you to stop doing things. Sluggard listens to lions, diligent, keeps going. Well, the third thing, the third character of the 
of the sluggard is that he actually refuses to work hard. Not only is he a mere talker, not only does he make excuses of the lions in the street, but he refuses to work hard. In Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death. His hands refuse to work. All day long he's craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. You see, he's got desire. There's nothing wrong with his desire. But all day long, even though he's craving, he refuses to do anything about it. I had a student once. We had parent-teacher conferences, which provide us with a lot of stories because this was an alternative high school for all the kids in McHenry County who get kicked out of the regular high schools. They all come to this high school. And so that's our entire population. Drug addicts, alcoholics, gang members, truants. And so we have parent-teacher conferences, which are very revealing when you meet their parents. And we know you got the idea that, all right, the parent is doing more drugs than the kid is. And the parent is more irresponsible than the kid is sometimes. And this one parent came in, and her son was Nick. And I had Nick in several of my classes. And she said, I just don't understand what's wrong with Nick. He just never does his work. He won't do anything. He won't do anything around the house. He won't do his homework. She said, what do you you guys think is wrong with Nick? Now, of course, we had a counselor in there who gave the psychological explanation, and we had a principal in there who gave a social explanation. And then it was my turn to give an explanation for Nick. And I said, well, basically, your son is lazy. That's the same response I got. Silence. Your son is lazy. She was offended at that. But I told her the truth. He was lazy. Didn't have a learning disability. Didn't have other things going on to interfere. He just didn't like to work. He refused to work. And so after that meeting, I was informed by the principal that I was never to tell a parent that their children were lazy. So I made note of that. And the next time we had parent-teacher conferences, that same woman came in. Same problems. Nick never does anything and that. So we go around, we give our evaluation. And I said, well, Nick is basically motivationally challenged. <laughs> I said the same thing. And she took that. It was okay. Now it was okay. Because lazy is a big word, isn't it? Nobody wants to be called Lazy. But if you refuse to work, if you refuse to be diligent, face it, then we're lazy. Gary Player, the golfer, golfer won most of his stuff in the 60s and 70s and that, he was out hitting balls at a practice range one time, and a couple of, he's a pro golf player, and a couple guys, a couple duffers came up and watching him hit these long drives and marveling how he can hit a ball so far. And this one guy said, said to him, Man, Gary, I wish I could hit a, hit a ball like that. I'd give anything to be able to hit a golf ball like that. Gary Player turned to him and said, No, you won't. You wouldn't give anything to hit a ball like that. Because after I'm done doing this for hours, my back is in pain. And it hurts. And I have to go get treatment. 
And if I took off my golf gloves right now, you would see that my skin cracks and it's starting to bleed and my hands hurt every day. So don't tell me that you would give anything to be able to hit a golf ball like that. See, Gary Player was willing to give that. He was diligent. The guy who was talking wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. He refused to do the work. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs, because it seems so quirky, is, where no oxen are, the manger is clean. I like that verse. But with much increase comes, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. What are you talking about clean stalls in Proverbs for? You know, if you don't own any oxen, you don't have to clean up after them, do you? You don't have to change the straw in the stall and clean up the messes that they make and feed them and whatever else. But guess what else you don't get? You don't get a harvest. You don't get to plant things. You don't get any food. So what do you want? You want to eat food or you want to have a clean stall? Say, well, I'd rather have food. Okay, then you've got to buy the oxen, feed them, clean up after them, take care of them so you can have food. No oxen, clean stall. Easy. But you're going to be hungry. The sluggard refuses to work. Well, lastly, I want to just wrap this up by giving you two very basic remedies to being a sluggard. The first remedy, it's very simple because Proverbs are very simple. The first remedy is you have to be persistent. Thomas Edison improved the light bulb. He got it so it could be a long-lasting light bulb. How many tries do you think it took Thomas Edison until he got that light bulb correct? So it would last for a long time. And the filament in there wouldn't keep breaking. 6,000 tries. Now you got to think, okay, after try number 10, he's going, okay, I'm an inventor. You, you have to keep redoing these things and try, and try number 90 and try 150 and try 1,000. And after 2,000 tries and 3,000 tries and 4,000 tries and 5,000 tries, when did you quit? I quit in double digits, I think. If I can't get it before 100, I figure it's just not meant to be. But he keeps going. 6,000 different formulas for that until he got it right. Now, when he undertook that, that uh, project, he thought it was just going to take him a few weeks to figure that out. It took him two years. Why didn't the guy just give up? Because he was using God's process. Diligence. I'm going to work this thing to the end, and I'm not going to quit. In Luke 18, and I'll read this to you, Jesus even gives an example of that. This is my favorite parable. He says, He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Okay, so this is the purpose of the parable. purpose of the parable is don't quit. All right? That's what Jesus is saying. There's a certain city and a judge who did not fear God, and he did not respect man, and there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to him, Even though I don't fear God and I don't respect man, yet because that widow bothers me, 
I'll give her legal protection, lest by continually coming to me she wears me out. The only reason the judge acquiesced was because the widow kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. Leave me alone, woman, he would say. What are you doing here again, woman? Stop, go home. I'm tired of you. And Jesus is saying, this is good behavior. This is good. She kept coming. And she wouldn't quit. And Jesus says, that's how you don't lose heart. Why? Because you don't give up. It's when you give up that we lose heart. If you're not going to give up, you're not going to lose heart. You keep doing it. William Carey, and I said this before from this pulpit, his secret for creating great missions in India and being the, the fuel to, to uh, flame missions around the world was not that he was gifted. He didn't have that much education. He was not a gifted person. He had never been on a missions trip in his life. He'd never headed a big organization. He didn't know the language. But he said, you know, there's one thing I can do. I can persevere in a task. That was it. I cannot give up. That was his secret. It wasn't a secret because Proverbs tells us all about that. I cannot give up. And there were plenty of people crying, lions in the street, lions in the street. William Carey, if you go there, you could be killed by the Hindus. Yep, could be. You can't raise a family in India, William Carey. Your wife is even pregnant now. Come back home. Stay here. No. Well, why don't you just convert, convert the heathen at home? There's plenty of heathen in England. Yes, there are. And there's more in India. After being there seven years, no one, is, no one had been converted. Seven years. People are saying, maybe this is a failed thing. Maybe God wants you to go someplace else. No, nope, I can persevere. I'm going to keep going. He didn't listen to the lions in the street. He kept going. And because of that, thousands are saved in India. And that multiplies to tens of thousands. And many missionaries went out just because he continued doing it. No big gifts. He just didn't quit. So that, one remedy. Persist. Whatever you're doing, whatever it was I said that you thought of at the beginning, whether it was school or work or a project that you're working on or a skill you're trying to develop, you just keep working on it. Don't quit. And the last thing is that if you're going to do any activity, you have to do it now. Ecclesiastes addresses this when Solomon says in chapter 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because there's no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol or the grave where you are going. Wow, that's a big pearl of wisdom. You mean once I die and they put me in the coffin and they close it and they lower it in the ground, I can't do anything after that? That's right. It's over. It's done. It's done. And you need to think about that. If you wait that long, you've missed it. So he says, whatever your hand finds to do, now do it with all your might. Now. Not later. Later and soon are words of the sluggard. And we all use them. We all do it. 
in college, I had a little sign on my desk. I don't even remember where I got it, but you know how busy college can be if you're working part-time and you have other duties and you're taking a full load of classes and that. And the sign said, do it today. That was it. Do it today. That sign helped me a lot because I wanted to put things off all the time. And I'll get to that someday. But then I look at that sign. Say, do it today. Well, why shouldn't I do it today? I know. I'd be lazy if I didn't do it today. I have time to do it today, so let's do it today. And after I graduated, I had a couple guys in my dorm. We just talked about college days and that. A couple of them mentioned, you know, that sign you had on your desk, I still remember that today. That it said, do it today. Because that was Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it now. Do it with all your might. Don't wait until you're lowered in the grave. Psalm 90 says, to, says, Lord, teach us how to number our days because they fly and are soon past so that we can make wise choices. So you've got to number your days. You've got to start counting. You said, well, how do I know how long I'm going to live? You don't. Maybe 70, maybe 80, maybe 50, maybe 40, maybe 30, maybe 20, maybe 10. You don't know. You don't know. But that's called numbering. Numbering doesn't mean I find out exactly how many years I'm going to live. I'm guessing 82. That's not numbering. Numbering is I've got to pay attention to use my time wisely now because I don't know how long I am going to live. If you wait for the grave, you will be miserable. Don't waste your time. Start now. And one last exhortation to those who do not know the Lord. And we've all been that place. We've all been lazy about our souls. If you don't know the Lord, you're being lazy about your soul. Because this is what you say. I'll change someday. I'll get serious about it someday. Someday never comes. That seriousness never happens. If you're really serious about your soul, you'll deal with death and life after death now. No excuses. You read your Bible now. You'll hear sermons now. You'll seek God now. You'll ask God now for help. Salvation is free. That's an amazing thing. That some people, and we've all done it, are lazy about their souls, and the salvation offered is free. Jesus Christ did it all on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. And then he offers it to these people. And to be honest, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort, does it, to call out to him and say, have mercy on me. Save me from my sins. I need you. That's not a lot of effort, is it? I don't think so. Christ did the work. You call on him. You can be saved. But the ultimate sluggard says, I don't care about my soul. I'm going to continue in my ways, continue in my sin. And when they die, it's too late. There's nothing they can do.
If you don't know the Lord, I exhort you to call on Him today. Today. And don't be a sluggard. Let's pray. Lord, help us with laziness because it's our tendency. It's attractive to us sometimes. It's easy to put things off. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of our excuses. Help us to not exaggerate. Help us to not be mere talkers. Help us to be doers. Help us to not shy away from hard work and things that are hard. And we need your help with that. I pray that you would take the warnings of Proverbs and penetrate our souls and penetrate our hearts so that we will not be slothful and we will not be found wanting in the day of judgment. Amen.